Hi everyone and welcome to Frazis Capital Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to play a recording of a webinar I did where I discussed our strategy in the life sciences and some of our favorite new positions in the sector. I hope you enjoy. Uh, we basically invest in, in tech and the life sciences in companies with two characteristics. So they're true customer love and explosive growth. Um, the reason we do that is that because it's the right answer to the question of where to invest. Um, I've talked at length about why we invest in that way and some examples in tech space. I thought I'd give a couple of quick examples of, of, of recent portfolio updates. So these are two companies that are, that are online brokers in China. Now there's two interesting things here. Firstly, they both posted exceptional results. So in Tiger's case, 250% revenue growth. In Futu's, 350%. Um, but also they're still down a lot from their highs. The so Tiger is 69% away from highs, Futu is 44%. And that's actually what we found throughout this reporting season. We're basically at the end of it. We've had a snapshot into every company. Uh, and across the portfolio, our average growth rate has actually gone up. So the companies have accelerated, even though they're well off their highs from uh, February. Here was a couple more. So Pinduoda, we had pegged, we had growth pegging, we had pegged growth at declining down to about 50 or 60% by now. Um, and it's turned out it's actually accelerated uh, and was up over 200%, 239%. Li is one of those Chinese electric vehicle makers. Now, these are small positions for us, but we think they're interesting because we know that China will go electric. You know, it's, it's a state of policy. Politicians there have very significant control over, over what happens in the country, over, over economic life in the country. And they basically flagged that, that this is going to happen. And now you're seeing it in the results. Um, so these companies got were red hot earlier in the year. They've more than halved in some cases. So Lee is over 100% away from its highs. And we think it'll be like Tesla and Ferrari and automakers in the West. The ones that go on the luxury side and can build brands and, and charge premiums and earn bigger margins will do the best. Those that are caught competing for the low cost vehicles uh, will have a very challenging time, irrespective of whether they grow or don't go, or rather irrespective of, of their growth. So we talked a lot, I think in every single one of these webinars, basically, we generally focus on, on technology. Maybe we, we've, I've talked about Moderna a couple of times, um, but really life sciences is a very core part of what we do. So I thought I'd give a little bit more detail in what we're looking for and how we go about it. Um, so what we really want is to find proven platform technologies. So by platform in this sense, we mean a company that can spin out drug after drug after drug after drug, or treatment after treatment. Um, Generally, they can do that because they own core IP around something. It might be mRNA uh, with Moderna. It might be on Nylon with RNAi. There's companies that develop, you know, a, a particular way of targeting, you know, intracellular proteins that is actually general. You know, you can use it for multiple different indications. And they're the kinds of companies we're really interested in because, firstly, they're not dependent on any particular um, trial result. Secondly, you know, if they prove the concept, there's a good chance they can just roll that out. They prove the concept for one, they basically prove um, the value of their entire pipeline. And then thirdly, obviously, they don't have that same kind of patent cliff that everybody else is worrying about because they're constantly bringing out new treatments um, and have a whole pipeline of candidates using the same technology at different stages of development. They can really smooth that out. Um, Often with these technologies, they're quite complicated. So manufacturing is complicated. Um, getting it right is complicated. It's not just simply patent. It's not just a small molecule um, that where your only protection is, is the patent. Often there's very complicated uh, processes around it. 
Um, one thing that's important, it's important to be early or at least get in at the right valuation. So a lot of these things become, everybody in the planet is now looking for platforms um, in biotech. And a lot of them, a lot of success is kind of starting to be priced into some of these. You still need to, to take that into account. The other issue is uh, with this stuff, you really need to focus on competition. I'll give you some examples of platform technologies where there are a host of different platforms going for the same indications and why we think that will lead to, will almost certainly lead to kind of a negative economic value, um, or effectively value destruction uh, over the course of those companies' lives. Uh, one other thing, this is probably professionals only. So with biotech, it's pretty complicated. I wouldn't rush out and buy any of these companies really. Uh, often if Often when companies release results, the first move of the stock is muted. Maybe it halves, but really it's worth zero. Or maybe it doubles and really it's worth 10 times as much. Um, and you really kind of need a little bit of expertise, I think, to be able to make those calls really quickly. Um, I actually think uh, retail investors can do very well in, in tech investing. But I'd say in this, this part of technology, uh, it's very difficult if you're not fully engaged with it. Uh, so first I talk about RNAi. So, the kind of hot thing at the moment is, is, is genetic engineering like CRISPR, um, adenoviruses, lentiviruses. These actually change the genome. Now, the reason we actually like RNAi and mRNA actually as well is they don't do that. They kind of act in between the genome and the protein. And so if you stop taking the drug, generally that reverses effect. Similarly, with things like CRISPR and, and, and genetic engineering, there's, there's huge risks. You're playing with people's genomes. Uh, often these trials end with significant majorities of the patients getting leukemia or having some kind of you know, hyperinflammation, cytokine storm, some kind of really adverse reaction to the, the viral vectors. Um, they're very risky. They're a lot more risky than people think and a lot, a lot more risky than you think if you just read all the kind of puff pieces about CRISPR. Uh, Alnalem is interesting. It's not as glamorous as Moderna, though it did share some of the founding scientific professionals and does have a lot in common. Uh, they have three approved drugs and a very extensive pipeline. Um, they're almost all liver-based diseases. In a way, an issue with all these medicines is they all get kind of, you know, processed in the liver. And so I guess in one, one way of dealing with this is to focus on liver diseases because that's where it's all going to end up anyway. Um, the other thing that's interesting is, so if you think about it, you've got your DNA, it makes mRNA, which then makes proteins, which go on and do all kinds of things. And if, and if that, the protein is wrong or missing um, or misfolded, then, you know, you can, you can cause disease. Now, antibodies and small molecule drugs generally work by targeting those proteins, uh, so the end of it. And then CRISPR, gene therapy, and so on generally target the actual genome. They're trying to fix, fix your DNA, a patient's DNA. RNAi and mRNA are in the middle. You know, they've got the, benef the best of both worlds, really. You know, they, they're, they're, they're affecting the actual cause of the disease um, using a natural kind of, kind of delivery method. Um, but they don't actually change your DNA. And so this is how impressive our Nylam's clinical development pipeline is. So you can see those three uh, approvals and a fourth one that's effectively approved, um, but not generating revenues at the moment. Um, they've got four phase two, phase three conditions, and then a large number, you know, where they've kind of filed phase two. Now these, some of these disease, diseases are interesting because they're things like hypercholesterolemia, <laughs> if I said that right. Um, basically diseases that a lot of people get, you know, things that affect hypertension, things that affect heart disease, um, which is one of, one of the real killers. The other thing we like about these kinds of companies, and we'd like to draw a distinction between something like alnylam and something like CRISPR, 
is the executions. This company has been delivering and executing for a number of years. They have 800 mil uh, plus of revenues this year, and that's just the start of their pipeline as the, the, their first few drugs are ramping up. So it's really just the beginning. You can analyze these um, you know, in, a, in a conventional way. I thought I'd put this chart in because it shows, you know, these charts I find are really helpful in tech stocks, but they also tell an interesting story in the life sciences. So the light blue line is the revenue and the dark blue is the EV sales. You can see that this was trading 100 times sales um, and that has now come down to 1718. You can also see that, you know, the last three years, this hasn't been a stellar performer. You know, so you don't really want to ride these waves of multiple compression. Now, there's huge parts of the life sciences right now that are trading at that 50 to 100 times sales. And they've been the best performers. And you know, company, firms like ARK have been big, heavy buyers of these. And actually, we were beneficiaries because we owned a few of these things and they just went up five times or more, um, in some cases, a lot more. But I think long term from here, like from this point forward, you're not going to get returns from buying in these kind of 150 to 100 times sales. You need to find, you need to do more work than that. You need to be better. You need to find things that other people don't see or that are earlier on in their journey. Um, so this is where Alan Island expects to be by 2025. So six marketed products, which is probably fair, given they've got four now. Um, and they're able to do four you know, investigational new drug applications every year. So that's what we mean by platform. Four new drugs a year. Um, I think I talked about this briefly. What do you think about CRISPR? I get asked this a lot. Look, it messes with the genome. I think you're better off targeting, you know, either in that middle bit with mRNA, RNAi, uh, or even the proteins upstream. You know, gene, genetic engineering is, we, we, we dust a bit of money on that actually in a, in a company called Bluebird Bio. So this is one of the original, this was a red hot stock in 2016, 2017. Basically when people first started doing genetic engineering, which massively predates CRISPR, you know, there the, the clinical trials of this stuff in, you know, 20 years ago. And basically all the, all the initial patients got leukemia. Um, a lot of safety modifications were made. It was, took 10 years of, of effectively kind of a desert where there was very little um, development done as people were trying to understand the safety issues. Uh, and Bluebird got pretty far with their programs, you know, got one drug approved um, and effectively were on the cusp of having three other drugs, three other genetic treatments uh, approved. And then there was another wave of leukemias in of people getting leukemia in a trial. So even, and that was, that was very recently. So even with everything that we've learned over the last 20 years, there's still those risks. You're still using, you're still messing with people's genomes and it's unpredictable. The consequences are unpredictable and, and generally devastating if you get it wrong. You know, it's very difficult to reverse these things. Um, another thing about CRISPR, which is, is put it, putting the science aside, um, and it's weird because you see all the, the, the CRISPR fan people, fanboys and girls, and they never seem to... Um, acknowledge this, but they're all going for the same conditions. So this chart shows all the companies targeting beta thalassemia. There's a bunch of them. They cannot all succeed. And this is just a handful that I picked off the internet um, off the top of my head. This is, these are companies targeting sickle cell disease. Now the reason people target these, there's basically four things that people target. It's beta thalassemia, sickle cell disease, haemophilia, and leukemias. They're all blood conditions. Um, generally you, you, you wipe people's they're all, they're all pretty bad blood conditions, um, so justify extreme treatments. You wipe people's bone marrow, which is where blood cells come from, um, replace it with effectively a kind of corrected set of genes one way or another, um, whether it's, I don't know, viruses, CRISPR, zinc fingers, um, and then those blood cell, those new bone marrow cells should then produce blood cells with the protein of interest, like either corrected or maybe it's something that's targeting a particular type of cancer. 
they're all doing the same thing and they cannot all win. So each of these companies has a significant, has value ascribed to the chance of its success in something like beta thalassemia. There's a good chance most or all of them will come out with treatments that, that do actually help, that are better than the current standard of a care, um, but they cannot all win the market. You know, it's just, a ma it's, it's, it's a matter of fact, one, maybe two of these companies um, will generate significant re revenues out of this. Um, and the rest will have to either find a niche where like their drug is better in a subset of the population um, or they'll lose money. And this is probably, you don't need to have any idea of biotech to know that if like 10 different companies are going for the same drug, they can't all win. Um, it's, similar, it's a similar dynamic in commodities when prices rise and everybody has these massive production ramp ups and they don't consider that everybody else is ramping up at the same time. Um, that's kind of what we see going on in CRISPR and why we think that it's not the place to be. Uh, the other company, platform company we'll talk about is Moderna. So the, the market cap's gone up to 75 billion now. That's 11 billion when we were buying last year. Um, they've got 19 billion of contracted sales. Again, I've got done a couple of uh, webinars and podcasts on this recently, so I won't go too deep. Um, but I will mention, I will just kind of draw your attention to the extent of their pipeline. It really is impressive. And, and as we, I discussed last time, you know, the ability to target all these respiratory infections, including old coronavirus, um, residual endemic coronaviruses from previous epidemics, different types of influences, the ability to really kind of like, um, uh, what's the right word, cure, vaccinate, protect against those diseases is really quite phenomenal. And that justifies a dramatically higher market cap than 75. Uh, there was something I did want to talk about with Moderna, and that's around IP. So there's, there's a bit of controversy around whether they should make their IP available. And Moderna said that they won't actually um, protect their IP during the epidemic. The problem is, is or the, not the problem, the advantage for Moderna is it's really complicated to make this stuff. Um, you have to make the mRNA, mRNA um, but you also then have to make these na lipid nanoparticles, like mRNA, and it's, if you just inject an mRNA, it'll just get quickly destroyed um, by your body. But they need to put in these lipid nanoparticles, which effectively almost like, almost like tiny little cells, um, that then get absorbed in the right place uh, and, and protect the mRNA for the right period of time that then goes and generates the proteins. And that is the bit that is very hard to do and why, you know, you can't, in Australia, we can't just get our top biotech companies to manufacture this stuff. They don't have the know-how. You need Moderna. You need somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, this just goes into that a bit more detail. So you can see there's, you know, sterols, phospholipids, mRNA, ionizable liquids. Those things all need to come together into like a coherent little capsule um, that's stable, and then that needs to be injected. And that's that's one of the really hard parts of the process. And that's that was actually the, the technical challenge that was it was really impressive that they were able to actually find ways of, of doing that. Um, and obviously once you can do that for a certain size targeting a certain tissue, uh, then whatever the mRNA is inside can be changed at will. Just a reminder on that. Ultragenics is another one that we're, we own. So this is, it's hard to call this a platform because I wouldn't say it has that same core technology. But what is impressive is they've managed to get four drugs to market. Um, very impressive actually. And so they've clearly developed expertise in navigating uh, those regulatory kind of that regulatory maze. The other thing they do very well is they're very uh, strategic about what indications they go for and they generally go for, for, for disorders where nobody else is going for them. They're orphan disease, there's no existing treatment, so you don't have to prove that you're better than standard of care. Um, but also there's no competition, so you actually do win the market. 
So you think about all these CRISPR companies, there's a good chance even if one wins, you know, two years later one of them proves that they're better and they slowly win parts of the market. Um, so there's really no, you can only ascribe a small amount of value to those, those technologies. And this is another, another one of those um, pipeline slides with the added benefit of, act, you can actually see that they've managed to get a few of these all the way to approval. As you can imagine, you can see some of the usual candidates in their gene therapy um, treatments like haemophilia and Duchenne. Uh, I thought I'd quickly talk about Alzheimer's because this is another interest of ours. Now, Alzheimer's is a tragic disease. Perhaps 50 million people have it, maybe 10 million new diagnoses every year. It's called the graveyard of drug development. So this chart shows all the unsuccessful drug applications for Alzheimer's. It's worth noting that all those approvals generally delay symptoms by a few months. Um, no one would describe them as, as cures or even, or even really they have much of an effect at all. Um, it's a tragedy. Now we think this is because the core scientific hypothesis around um, what causes the disease is wrong. Um, so it's worth going into that. So the idea is basically it was a beta amyloid hypothesis. So when people first looked into Alzheimer's brains, you know, 100 years ago, they noticed there was a lot of beta amyloid tangles. So it was immediately kind of connected with the disease. Um, they were then able to genetically engineer mice to express um, beta amyloid, and, and, and they got the disease, which is kind of convincing. There are also some people that had genetic disorders that produced more beta amyloid, and they also generally got early, al early onset Alzheimer's. So there was a few, there was a few pieces of, of, of evidence that effectively convinced the scientific community that beta amyloid was 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 the cause. Now there's two things that I think demonstrate very clearly, even if you don't, even if you aren't a specialist in the field, that, that hypothesis is probably wrong. First one is that there's very good antibodies, the clear beta amyloid, that don't affect disease. In fact, some of them seem to even worsen the disease, probably because the antibodies trigger inflammation and that inflammation is involved in cell death. So strike one is if beta amyloid causes the disease, why does clearing that not help? That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense on a deep fundamental level. Second point is many people have plenty of beta amyloid and tau tangles, but don't get the disease. And so again, there's no causal link there. So that's kind of strike two. Now, either of those to me kind of at least cast very significant shade on the hypothesis together and then combined with every single one of these different approaches that failed indicates that something else is going on. And there's a few clues to this. Um, I should show a list of all the clues of Alzheimer's we have, because there's a number and it's very interesting. One of them are these APOE genes. Um, so we each have two APOE genes. Uh, APO2 is protective, APOE3 is, is normal, and, and the four one is, is very indicative of Alzheimer's. So most people who get Alzheimer's usually have one of these genes. And if you have both of them, then you have a very high chance of getting it, um, you know, at least 15 times more than normal. Uh, this is one of those few things that if you get genetically tested, you might consider very carefully over whether you actually want to know this. Um, it, even then, it's not a slam dunk. So apparently Nigerians have the highest frequency of APOE4, um, but one of the lowest Alzheimer's frequencies. So there, there's still little kind of hints of what actually the mechanism might be, um, potentially to do with low cholesterol. Look, I think, I think the issue is with this disease is it's one of... It's one of aging. You know, there's a constant, the immune system is extremely complicated. If you think about it, you know, how on earth, if you get infected with something new, does your body slowly adapt to then attack it? Like, and then how does that, that, that system that adapts and attacks it, how does that not attack 
any of the kind of billion other things in your body? Like, how does it know? Um, and then how does it remember and then get better and better at doing that? That's like your adaptive immune system. It's, it's extremely complicated. It's, it's increasingly well understood, um, but it's also very expensive. It's expense, evolutionarily expensive. Uh, the better your immune, the stronger your immune system is, the more you get things like asthma, autoimmune diseases, um, you know, certain types of di diabetes, of diabetes, uh, potentially even Alzheimer's. And there's very little, there's very little selective genetic selective pressure on things that keep you living longer. I mean, it's interesting that people live so long. It's probably because there is a huge genetic benefit in having older people around uh, who can tell you, you know, where the best watering hole is or what to do in a drought that happens every 20 or 30 years. You know, there's, there's clear survival benefits of having that wisdom. Um, but, you know, elder people generally are not reproducing, so it's very hard for that to get passed on. So it looks like, like, if I had to, if I had to guess, this is, this is some kind of autoimmune disease, some kind of disease that, 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 that is caused by the trade-off of those things. So APOE4 is protective in some, in some areas, like macular degeneration. Um, it also appears that slowly APOE3 and 2, are, uh, they're kind of like the more new, um, more new developments in, in the genome. Uh, back to Alzheimer's, this, they're all just things. Oh, one other thing that's interesting is mouse models are really bad for this because mice are really short-lived. Their brains are different. Our brains are probably the most distinctive thing about us as a species. Um, so it's, it's very unlikely we'll ever find a really good model. And when mass models get Alzheimer's, they're generally kind of okay. They just, they, they show symptoms, but they just die when they normally would die. Um, so there's lots of questions around animal testing and when it's appropriate, when it's not. Um, and there's, there's very fundamental problems with using animals for Alzheimer's. There's another fundamental problem actually with Alzheimer's, and that's that it's very expensive and difficult to to do trials for things that are slow, for, 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 for slow diseases that, that manifest over long periods of time. Because your patent's kind of, the patent clock is ticking. Um, and obviously the longer the trial goes, the more expensive it is. And the longer it takes to iterate. If you're doing three or five year trials, um, you really can only iterate at the end of that. So a researcher might spend their whole life and only get a few chances um, to improve a trial. It's also, I think, one of the reasons why we get such muddled reasoning on diet, because it's so hard to actually do a diet study. Um, because really what you, what you want to know is if I eat a certain way throughout my life, how does that affect longevity, health? Um, and that study is just so expensive to do over tens of thousands of people and so difficult to control, it's almost impossible to be done. So we may, we may never get um, answers to that one either. Uh, it's a couple of things. So Alzheimer's could be caused downstream of amyloid beta, or kind of upstream, I guess. Um, so before they form the plaques, maybe there's something going on earlier. The problem for that is, is it means that every time there's a failure, just a reminder of how many failures there's been, um, it gives an excuse that maybe it was just simply administered too late. So then it's okay, we'll do another trial. Um, and that has been a huge roadblock into development, I think. It means that, that ideas should have been killed earlier, often kind of linger as these zombie ideas that might have worked if they were only done a few years earlier. Um, what else is worth saying? Yes, yeah, so in this chart it shows that 22 of the 29 Alzheimer's risk genes are microglia specific. So that's one of the other reasons why I kind of think this is, has hallmarks of autoimmune disease. Um, it's just that really tight genetic link to microglia, which are your brain's special immune cells. One hypothesis was interesting was whether it could be caused by an infection. There's certainly cases where infections can cause dementia. There's 
a dementia that seems to be related to herpes. There's HIV-related dementia. Um, but the question is, could, could, could Alzheimer's be, be caused by an infection, not just normal dementia or other types of dementia? Um, some interesting clues here is amyloid beta occurs in most animals. animals. APOE genes predate you know, animals so they're in, in even more simple forms of life. And so if these things were, were harmful, they probably would have been long gone. Um, an interesting piece of data was that we're able to actually trigger alpha beta, sorry, they would trigger Alzheimer's by injecting people with, uh, in injecting animals with, with bacteria, pathogens. So you can see here in this chart, this is amyloid beta fibrils entangling these bacteria. And one would think stopping them from doing more harm. So that could be a clue that, that this is actually protective. There's a gingivalis hypothesis that's actually caused by gingivitis. Um, gingivalis bacteria are quite nasty stuff. They use these en special enzymes, very rare enzymes, basically dissolve proteins. These triggers all kinds of like inflammation in your gums. Um, and you know, if, if, if all your bacteria get out of balance, uh, usually caused by gingivalis, that can kind of cause gum disease, it causes bleeding, they, they can get in the blood. Um, over 90% of Alzheimer's patients were found to have gingivalis bacteria in their neurons, which was interesting. But then there was a causal link. Researchers were able to induce Alzheimer's, um, they should say Alzheimer's, not gingivalis, reduce Alzheimer's symptoms in mice. So you can see in this chart, um, basically that data, they're able to trigger amyloid plaques, trigger neuroinflammation, and trigger neurodegeneration. So it's causal. So if you think about where this kind of um, hypothesis came from, there was epidemiological studies that linked Alzheimer's disease to gingivitis. Um, Alpha-beta amyloid was discovered as an antimicrobial peptide, so it has antibacterial activities, which kind of links them again. Maybe it's when these things get in your brain, which they do, um, amyloid plaques, uh, amyloid is created to protect it. Um, it links it with the immune system. All that, those, that data that shows inflammation is part of the disease is linked because inflammation is an immune reaction. Um, and there's that causal effect. So cortisone has a drug that they have very, very initial, very good animal data actually, that it clears both um, gingivalis and uh, effectively reduces the Alzheimer's symptoms that can be caused by gingivalis. Um, they have some very preliminary data in people with N equals six, so six people in this trial probably not enough to say anything, um, but it has some of the best set of preclinical data I think I've, I've seen in a while in this, in this disease. It also kind of works. The other interesting thing about cortisone, and full disclosure, we have a very small position in this, is that the drug could just, treat, could just treat um, periodontal disease. So even if it doesn't work for Alzheimer's, it could still take out gingivalis and help in another way. So you've got two shots on goal to, with, the, with the same... Um, drug. Another one is cassava, which has a novel approach to reducing inflammation. Um, they target something called filament A, which is a scaffolding protein in the brain. Uh, again, you can see there's that, that, that neurodegeneration and neuroinflammation piece, that immune system piece. They've actually got data that this kind of worked. Um, so still relatively small studies, but it was dose-dependent improvement uh, in spatial working memory and episodic memory. And these things were judged as relevant. And this company, I mean, the, the thesis behind cortisone and gingivalis, I think, is really coherent. It explains a lot of things, things from APOE, um, how inflammation is involved. Um, 
Cassava is a bit more complicated. It's not quite clear what the mechanism is, but it does seem to be working. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of things that we're working on in Alzheimer's. Uh, we're pulling together a more involved piece. I think you kind of need to write these things. It's very hard to, to kind of talk about them. Um, but one thing I would say is these are pretty small positions for us. So it's about 1.5% in total um, across those two. And we kind of do them, they're, they're really, uh, I think they have to be that size. And we will react very quickly to data as it comes out uh, to mitigate the risk there. There's still the potential of those things to, you know, add 20 or 30% to the portfolio. So we think they have a valuable role. Um, but I certainly wouldn't go, rush out and go out and put significant amounts of money into them either. Um, we get this question a lot. How are we different to ARC? Look, I think there's a couple of things. I think that, that CRISPR versus mRNA and RNAi is, is a good distinction. You know, they're obviously very big on CRISPR and, and genetic engineering. We think that other approaches are going to work. Um, ARC has a, will, will happily hold companies at 50, 100 times sales. We generally won't do that unless we can get in early. The other thing is our, the growth rate of our portfolio is significantly higher. So we're, the last time we checked, we were well over 100%. It was actually close to 150%. So that's the organic growth rate of our portfolio companies, which we think is exceptional and don't think there's anybody else kind of running portfolios like this. Uh, and we expect that, or that has driven our returns and we expect it to do so going forward. We're also kind of less concentrated. So, you know, Tesla is 10% of, of Kathy Wood's portfolio and Teladoc is 6%, whereas our largest positions will be 6 or 7%. Um, but having said that, there's some pretty big similarities. You know, we both focus on innovation. We want to be on the right side of history. Um, we're kind of aligned in the sense that we think that you're going to get significantly better investment returns by investing in technology and innovation. And in fact, whether you look at kind of any fund manager, really, the extent to their performance, the extent to which they perform generally is, is driven by how much they allocate to tech. Uh, and that's kind of been the, the case over the last 15, 20 years. And I think it'll be the case going forward as well. So there's probably a lot more similarities and differences, but I thought I'd just kind of highlight those. And TXG, so this is, this is an example. This is one of, our, one of those companies that are extremely rich in terms of EV sales. So we made money out of this, but effectively sold out. Um, but it's still one of Cathy's uh, top 20, 15th largest position. Um, I might just check if there's any questions. Are there any questions? I've answered two. No. Okay, good. So in summary, in the life sciences, we focus on platforms. That's the ability of companies to generate entire pipelines and tens of billions of dollars of revenue. All of our companies have demonstrated that, all of our platform companies, whether it's Moderna, Alnylam, or Ultragenics. Um, this is a key differentiator for us because these kinds of companies generally don't really exist in Australia. Um, the market's just too small. Um, and we do have a very small amount of the portfolio in kind of niche life sciences opportunities, like those few companies with different approaches to Alzheimer's that have actually got preliminary data in humans um, that is quite convincing. Um, so I'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for listening in. And that wraps up episode 46 of Frazz's Capital Podcast. If you enjoyed that, please subscribe. And if you'd like to find out more information about us, please go to www.frazzescapitalpartners.com. I hope you have a fantastic week.